drop reflecting on the water as the sun shuts her eyes don't know why you'll uncover watch the tide rolling with the moonlight everything is silent on this wheezy listening to Missing Magnolia, Scarlett and Michelle here. And today we have with us Natalie Murray. Natalie Murray is a forensic artist living in Texas. She frequently works with the Seattle police agencies and their medical examiner offices. Armed with a tablet and a stylus these days, Natalie has been a huge advocate in the push towards using digital forensic art. Natalie teaches digital techniques through classes and has written a course book used within the field. When not teaching, Natalie is using her skills and services to help solve cases. Natalie has her own forensic art company and is no stranger to reconstructions, postmortems, and age progressions. And thanks to Leads Online, an investigative system, Natalie can offer her digital services to law enforcement nationwide and can interview witnesses remotely. Natalie has been instrumental in the ID of many cold cases. One of the more well-known IDs was that of Orange Socks a 1979 case where the victim finally has her name back. Natalie also has experience in forensic genealogy. So Natalie is a little bit of a triple threat. She's a forensic artist, has experience in forensic genealogy, and is another redhead. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you, Scarlett. It's good to be here. Thanks. So for people that maybe have more normalized hobbies, can you take us through some of the more knowns of forensic art describe for us what are reconstructions, what are digital composites and postmortems and age progressions? Sure. There are, as you say, a few different types of forensic art. Most forensic artists start out as a law enforcement officer and they only learn to do composites. And that's where you sit down with the victim or the witness of a crime and you draw the suspect in the crime that happened to them. I think of it as drawing a portrait of someone you've never seen. You have to do a drawing based on somebody's memory, and that's the most difficult one for me. The one that I do more often nowadays is the two-dimensional reconstruction from skeletal remains. And there's two-dimension and three-dimensional reconstructions. The 3D reconstruction is building it in clay over the skull directly. That's not done as much anymore because there are 3D digital programs that you can use instead of working directly on the skull. But I do the 2D reconstruction, which is drawing over the skeletal remains. So this is if you have a victim that has been found out in the woods or that maybe is washed up on a shore and they don't have any identification on them at all. The medical examiner's office has tried everything they can to get them ID'd through the normal channels, fingerprints or dental, talking to an odontologist to ID the teeth. Everything they come up with, they can't find who this person is. And so they'll give me or another artist the skull and then we photograph that skull and draw the face of the person that it belonged to. There's another identification for people that have died without ID. This is called postmortem drawings. And that's when the remains of the person are fleshed. So they haven't been out in the woods for a long time. Maybe you found behind a business somewhere or, or in a dumpster or something like that found on a city street. You can still see their face, but it has either been a little while. So there's some decomposition. There may be some trauma to it. There may be some animal activity or insect activity. So the artist takes the photographs of the person from the autopsy from the medical examiner's office and basically makes them look more like they looked in life. Those are the basic types. There's also age progression. Not a lot of artists do a lot of those. That's maybe if you have a missing fugitive or a missing person that's been gone for a long time and people want to know 
maybe how they look now. So knowledge of the muscles of the face and neck is important and a knowledge of how we age and how those muscles change and your appearance changes as you age. Oh my gosh, that's so much. Could you tell us a little bit, I don't know, this might be even the wrong kind of question. Is there a typical case or what's your typical case or day look like? Well, it depends on what each artist specializes in. I mean, some artists that work at police departments, a typical case is a composite and it's normally a felony crime, whether it's a homicide, attempted homicide, an assault with a weapon, uh, kidnapping, anything that's got a victim to it and that they want to try and see what the suspect looks like. Because honestly, if you try and release something in the media and the police department says, okay, the suspect is a white male in his 50s, 5'10", 165, brown hair, and how many guys is it going to apply to? But if you have an image for people to see, it's much easier for them to get more drawn into the case if they see an image in the, in the paper or on the news. It's a tool to help investigators move on with their case, maybe find different people that they weren't aware might be involved. But for me, I mostly do reconstructions these days. And so that's working with the medical examiner's office instead of a police department. Normally, it's uh, working with the skull directly and finding what on that skull makes it different from every other skull. I mean, you consider that everybody's face is different, right? So it makes sense that what your face is sitting on is also different from everyone else. And to be able to find those differences, to be able to find the areas of the face that are more specific to an individual is what I focus on myself. And that's what I enjoy doing. So it depends on what's going on. I live in Austin now, but I started my career up in the Seattle area and I have uh, close ties with the King County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle. And so if I go up there, say to visit my mom, I'll call the King County ME's office, my forensic anthropologist up there and say, do you have any cases? I'm coming up in March and contact the Snohomish County Medical Examiner. Also, I work with them and have drawn all their cases and see if they have anything going on. So I could do three or four or five jobs at a time if I go up to Seattle for a week, or they may contact me through email or on the phone and let me know that they have a case that they'd like to get moving on. And it's not unheard of to have them mail the skull to me and do the whole drawing here at my home. What's the demand like for you? You mean the number of cases that I do? Yeah, on a day-to-day, do you get a lot of requests? It ebbs and flows. I could do one a month. I can do four a month. It's not a full-time job by any means, and it's certainly not something where you're going to make top dollar. In law enforcement, where I started, mostly everybody has a specialty that they want to work, whether it's canine or if it's SWAT or if it's PROACT or if it's traffic. And I chose art uh, because I liked to draw to begin with. When officers retire, they'll often go into sort of consulting in the specialty that they have chosen. And art is not the one that you're going to make money at. (laughs) So considering it's not a evidentiary item, the drawings that you do are not evidentiary. So it is considered sort of like a bonus. And law enforcement doesn't always have the money to spend on things that aren't going to help them definitely move along the case. So considering that uh, most police agencies do not have forensic artists, we don't have a record of it completely, but we believe there's under 100 full-time artists in the country, maybe closer to 50. And so many states do not have a full-time artist. They'll have maybe a police officer that does drawings part-time, as I started out doing it part-time while you're working. You might have a police agency close to yours that knows that you're working, that you have forensic art skills and say, I've got a homicide over here. Can you send the artist over here to help me out? So they'll do some of that. But as a freelancer that I am now after retirement, the work ebbs and flows. What would you suggest to someone who hears something like this and says, oh, my God, this is what I've always wanted to do? It's a really difficult field to get into. 
since I had some training classes and I've been involved in helping others train, we get a lot of people come through and, and say, this is what I want to do. Either they have been affected by crime and they want to pay back and help and they have art skills, or honestly, we get some kind of odd types that are just interested in the whole creepy factor of it and want to be involved. But the easiest way to get into forensic art is by being a police officer already, because consider that this is something that is normally used on a felony case and how difficult it is anyway to prosecute felony cases. You do not want a person out there as the artist who you don't know anything about. You don't know how they're going to affect the case. Do they know how to interview a witness? And would they say anything that could make the case difficult when it goes to court that the defense can pick open and say, no, you can't use that. So an officer normally isn't going to use someone who they don't already know in the law enforcement community. There are a few full-time forensic artists in the country, as I mentioned, and some of them are civilians. But those positions are so rare to come up that often if somebody gets one, they'll keep it for their whole career. I know people that have been in it 20, 25 years still at the same department. Nobody else is going to get in there. How do you balance science and art with what you do, especially when you interact with witnesses or you're just working from the skulls? How do you make those decisions that are potentially unknown in terms of the features? There is a lot that is known in terms of the features on the skull. I mean, there are specific things that you can see on the bone that give you an idea of what a feature looks like. The great thing about doing reconstructions for me is you can see where everything goes. You can see the proportions, how long the nose is, how far the nose is from the mouth, how wide the eyes are, you know, different things about the face that you don't know when you're doing a composite. So you may get the features pretty accurately when talking to a witness or a victim to do a composite. But if the proportions are off, people aren't going to recognize it. Proportion is the number one thing in facial recognition. So if you already have that on a reconstruction, you kind of got to step up to begin with. Honestly, the way I think of it is the forensic anthropologist is the science part of it, and I'm the art part. I do not have medical background. I do not have the skills to tell you this skull belongs to this ancestry and this sex. I mean, after 20-some years, I get an idea of what it is, but you can't quote me on it. You can't take it to court. I find that in doing reconstructions on the skull is that as I progress in the drawing, I get an idea in my head of what this person looks like. And it may be right or may be wrong, but the point of the drawing is not to get an exact portrait of the person. It's actually opposite to that. The point of the drawing is to get as many people to call in as possible. So to stay as unspecific as you can while still being accurate to the face. I love the way you explain that. And that's also the exact way I write conference abstracts, as vague as I can be, right? <laughs> you know, in case my results are a little different than I thought they would be. Yeah, yeah. But that makes sense. The more eyes that are on it, and it also really makes sense what you said in the beginning with like noticing what are those differences in their skull or those distinct features. That's, right. It's like, how do you highlight those and also maintain that ambiguity that is definitely science plus art. To me, things that are most singular about a skull are a lot of times just, you might notice that one eye is attached medially at the outside higher than the other eye. And so you kind of see an angle happening. And then maybe as you progress down the face, you'll see that it's same on the base of the nose. One nostril is higher than the other. And oftentimes it's the same side. And then maybe the mouth is also a little higher on one side. So to me, all the features are playing together in harmony like music. To find that individuality in that person, I think, is something that's going to make it more noticeable or more recognizable to someone. It may not be something that you think of when you see them, but your brain sees it. And so that's what I'm looking for. 
Are there any ethnicities that are more difficult than others? I think that's a personal preference. I like drawing African ancestry. I think the skin is more dynamic. You can put a lot more colors into it. You can put greens and purples and that kind of thing. And it's more interesting to me. Like a Caucasian ancestry, the skin is just so pale and not really a lot of tone and color change in there. It's, I think, dependent on each artist. The difficult part is if the person isn't obviously only one ancestry. Nobody is completely one ancestry. We know that. But if the skull is somewhat ambiguous in regard to the background, we did have a case up in King County of a skull that it was difficult to tell, but it was more of a longer skull, top to bottom, taller, which is normally a, an Asian trait. But the the skull, the remains were found close to a Native American reservation. So it was thought, well, is she Native? And it was really close to the Native reservation and Native ancestry is similar to European and Asian mixed together. And so we're thinking, okay, it could be kind of native, not really sure. So I did the drawing to make it somewhat ambiguous, but the eyes were kind of Asian looking, but the skin tone was sort of medium and nothing was found for several years. And then after that, I got a call from my colleague and he said, they sent me this case. We got DNA and guess what? She's actually, I think sub-Saharan African or something. There, it was an African race that has long faces, but we don't see that in the Northwest very often. So it was not something this forensic anthropologist was familiar with. So together... He borrowed my photos to make sure he got the proportions right. And then he did his drawing. And so together we kind of worked with it. My beginning, his ending. Do you celebrate? And if so, how? When you hear things like this, because man, I would need to like high five myself or something. It's very, very exciting when I get an idea. You'd have to be heartless to say it isn't because that's why you're doing the job. You're doing the job because there's not really a lot of people that can do it. And so even though I retired from law enforcement, I keep doing this and because it's fascinating. But the point of it is to help people and to help families get their loved one back and to help this person not be out there in limbo forever unidentified. And so, yes, it's it's very rewarding when they're ID'd. It's most rewarding for me when it's a very, very cold case, someone that had been given up. They didn't expect anything to happen. We talk over and over again about that prolonged missingness and, and that grief. And that's a whole different kind of grief. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's horrible that people have to live that way. And so if you can help that in any little way, it's it's very satisfying. Just an offshoot a little bit. You mentioned working with in potentially Indigenous persons cases. Is that something that you get to do often? I ask just because we know there's an Indigenous missing persons and, and missing women who are being murdered. We, we're not even counting them. And right. you know, I do some research on that kind of stuff. And I'm just out of curiosity, like how much exposure do you have to Native lands and those kinds of cases? As far as I know, I've only done four cases that have been ID'd as Native. There was one up in Alaska. So that would be more of an Inuit background. And that was in the late 60s. And then I had a, a case from Chicago from 1968 of a woman who had been murdered and they asked me to do so a cold case drawing on her, which is the drawing out of all my drawings that has got the most traction on it on Facebook. I got over 91,000 hits on it now and over a thousand and a half shares on it. And again, it's because I think, like you said, that the focus there is now on missing and endangered native women, indigenous women. And then I have done two other drawings. There's one in Washington called Helen Doe up in the Seattle area. And that's also a cold case. It was mid-90s. And then a fourth one recently. So no, I haven't done a lot over 20-some years, maybe four. You mentioned pre-show your interest in genetic genealogy. We're seeing so many cold cases daily solved. Have you seen kind of the synchronicity between with what you do as well as, can you talk, speak a little bit to that effect? 
I have been doing my own genealogy since I was 18. I went back to Australia um, where my mom is from and sat down with my great uncle and he was showing me what genealogy work he'd done on the family tree. And at that time I got hooked. So I've been doing it myself since I was 18. But then as soon as it came out in law enforcement, I thought this is fantastic. It's my hobby, but it could also be something that could help in my job. And so I kind of kept track of that. And I did join up with DNA Doe Network when I came down here to Texas and came onto the cold case unit at Williamson County because they asked me to take over the three cold cases that they had in Williamson County that were unidentified remains. And so I took those over to investigate and the DNA had already been taken from those remains and sent off to be analyzed. And then I think all three cases have gone to DNA Doe. So I, I contacted them and said, look, I'm familiar with genealogy. I'm working the case. Can I work it with you doing the genealogy part? And so I did. And that's how it came about to get the orange socks ID'd. So it, it doesn't normally go with the forensic art part. But in this case, just because I like both of them, I get to do them both. The forensic genetic genealogy stuff is just so fascinating. It brings me so much joy to know that like these typically old white men are just like baking a little roast in their house and knock, 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 you know, I just love it. They're going ahead, living their whole lives like nothing ever happened is just infuriating. Exactly. But hopefully now they're all looking back over their shoulder saying, what did I leave at the crime scene? When are they coming for me? Could I ask what cases sort of stand out in your memory? Um, are there any that you would like to share that maybe could use some exposure? Well, the Helen Doe case could certainly use some exposure. She's had exposure in Washington State. But this is a case of a trucker who picked up a woman we don't know where. And he was traveling, I think, from Missouri over to Seattle. And when they got into Washington State, they did go to a truck stop. So people saw them and saw her, which is interesting, and then got back in his truck and started down the highway. And there was an accident or something. There was a vehicle stopped on the highway and he smashed into it. And the cab of his truck just went up in flames that he and the woman were both burned and died. It was easy to identify him as the trucker, but nobody knew who she was. If she had any ID on her, it burned up in the fire. And so nobody knows where she came from, anywhere between Missouri and Washington, and nobody knows who she is. But what was interesting is that people had seen her. So I did have a little bit of a physical description, and she was Native American. And so I've done that one, and I redid that one recently for them, because as time goes by, we learn more and more about specifics of forensic art. And so I've come up with different studies some of them are from odontologists, some of them are from plastic surgeons, and different people have studied different things about the face and putting all those together. And I thought I could do a better job that I had more specifics to work with that I didn't know the first time I did it. So I redid that drawing just last year. The Washington State Patrol has been working that one very hard, but it's so far they're not getting anywhere. And it might be because she is native and you don't get a lot of interaction with that population in general. Yet again, another missing indigenous woman. So that one could certainly use getting a word out. The cases that have been most rewarding, well, Orange Sox has got to be at the top of the list there. The way that came out was, uh, you know, that I came to work for Williamson County and they said, okay, we, we here's our three unidentified cases. And the sergeant said, would you redraw these? And I looked at the cases. I said, well, no, you know, Karen Taylor did, drew them and she is top of the forensic artist heap. And I wouldn't presume to redo the drawings after she had done them. But then when I was looking through the case, I saw the autopsy photos and I thought, I don't think that a couple of these features are exactly right. I'd like to change that a little bit and she should look younger. 
So I did the drawing with mixed feelings, but I did the drawing. And when they released it, within two days, a woman came forward and said, that looks like my sister. And I haven't seen her since the late 70s. There's not really a lot that a detective can do until they know who this person is to be able to help that and to get the cases rolling again and maybe try and get some small piece of justice for someone is rewarding. Can I just ask your opinion? And you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But what do you think about Samuel Little drawing all of his victims? Do you think that those drawings are in any way realistic of actual victims? I think they are actual victims. The, the Texas Ranger, Jim Holland, did some trainings for homicide investigators and hearing the story of how that whole thing happened is just fascinating. The skill may not be that great, but it's good enough that someone recognized at least one of them. Sure. I mean, I think that he clearly had in his mind a very clear picture of each of these women. And maybe his skill wasn't that good to get it onto paper, but there's enough recognizable, enough anomalies on each person that they are able to be ID'd. Like I said, any image out there is better than just a, a written description. For me, in-depth memory of the victims or, or like in your brain to be able to distinguish between them would be hard with a body count so high. Not um, if that's but, what gives I mean, you joy. You're right. If that's the thing that you're thinking about for weeks on end, you might be memorizing those facial features. He Good had point. that fully in his brain each and every time that he did it. He'd go through a little file cabinet and say this one. This is the one I want to think about tonight. Totally evil and unimaginable Absolutely. that could happen, but it does. Can families request your involvement? Like if somebody thought that that would help their family member's case? I have done cases rarely for people. There was a couple who I think they were from California and they spent part of the year down in Mexico every year and they had someone come into their condo and rob them. And so they asked me to do a drawing because the police department in Mexico was not interested in doing that. And they did end up with an identification. Occasionally I get that. I have had families ask for things, but I don't like to work cross purposes with law enforcement. The private requests I get the most are from people who want an age progression on their deceased child. And it's heartbreaking, but I don't do a lot of those. Do you still draw other topics in your off time since you have that skill? Do you do any more creative projects to kind of decompress from some of these scenes? Yeah, I do. I currently sell some of my work in the town that I live in at a little store down there. So I make prints and cards and things out of them. But the fine artwork that I do, some of it's digital, some of it's, like I said, oil painting or something. It is still focused on skulls. <laughs> and some of it, people's skulls, some of it are animal skulls, or it, but it may have some other twist to it. And I like doing still life paintings too. For me, I'm not the kind of artist that can draw something out of their imagination. I like to be able to see it in front of me. And so if I set up a still life, then I can see it and I can see how the light is falling on it and how the colors change as the item turns in space. I prefer that, or I may start out with a skull and then make some changes to it. I beta test the software that I draw with. And so they're always coming up with new tools in that software. So I may start out with a skull and then sort of riff off it with some of the new tools they have and come up with something totally different. And some of those have, have become some of my hottest sellers, actually. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like to draw. I love to draw. I love to paint. And so, yeah, I do it for work and on the side. Is there anything you might want to close with today? If you see a drawing and you think you might have an idea of who that is, please call. But also... Don't judge the artist too harshly. As I said, many artists don't have a lot of experience in it. Maybe they're a police officer that didn't know how to draw before their sergeant sent them to training. And if the composite gets somebody to call, it did its job, no matter how awful it is. The whole 
point is to get someone to call in. And same thing with the reconstruction. You know, if somebody doesn't have the best art skills, but still maybe rings a bell to you, that's doing its job. The more experience you get in seeing skulls and in seeing what's individual about them, the better your work will be. And so, you know, people that get maybe one skull a year or every five years, they're very nervous about doing it. Also, I do not currently teach. That's why I put out the book uh, showing my techniques for digital drawings, because it's when I started doing digital drawing, a partner and I, um, back in 2011, I got some pushback from the forensic art community saying this, this is not good. You know, you shouldn't do drawings that way. You should use a pencil. You shouldn't interview victims over the computer. You can't develop a rapport with them just on Zoom or Skype or something. Over the years, it's turned out that, yes, you can. We've got several IDs that way. And so more agencies are coming to see digital as useful and they're coming to kind of expect it. I am part of the International Association for Identification, uh, which is the only governing body for forensic artists in the world. And I'm on the forensic art subcommittee there. So I I have uh, contacts with other artists that way. We have conferences every year. This year it will be in Omaha. We'll go there and have more interaction with colleagues and talk about different ideas and talk about different things we've been doing. But then, like I said, I'm I'm working on another book now uh, that I want to help other artists who don't have that much experience with skulls be able to learn to read the skull. It's the title I'm kind of working with, Reading the Skull, Advanced 2D Reconstruction. Yeah, you're building the village, keeping it going. Gotta have a village because it's a very small one. I mean, if you can help each other, help each other. Thank you so much, Natalie. This has been really amazing. We'll definitely put the link to Helen Doe and any other cases you want to bring attention to. The more the cases are seen out there, the better chance they're going to get solved.